News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, it's not just the United States these days where it feels like all the politics has just become so polarized. We are not immune to this here in Canada. And I've often heard people ask the question, how did we get here? How did it become like this? We're almost afraid to have a conversation with someone that includes some politics in there. Well, it could be because of the language we use when it comes to talking about our political opinions. Yeah, it could be about how we talk about it. This is something our next guest has been researching. Gustavo Navoa is a doctoral candidate in political science at Columbia University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. How do we talk about politics? Are we not polite enough with each other? We're probably not polite enough, but... Um more specifically, it's um, one of the problems that we have is as people, we generally like to sort of lump things into categories and to assume that the things in those categories are more alike than they are. Um, so basically what in, in the U.S. context, we like to say Democrats are this way and Republicans are that way. And even though Republicans and Democrats do have pretty different views in the United States, those larger groups, and they are very large groups, are, of course, made up of many smaller groups. And those smaller groups have big distinctions between them. Um, so Republican men and Republican women might feel differently about things. But we like to lump things together. We like to say, this is how this party is. Um, you know, like the Liberal Party in Canada, it's, it's all this way. Uh, and the Republicans in the U.S. are all that way. Um, it's something that is very basic to human nature and, and something we find very comforting and helpful, I think. Okay, so are you saying that we make assumptions? Yeah, we make assumptions that, that sort of flatten the world. Um, we, we make generalizations is the word I would use. Um, so basically, we like to paint a more simple picture of what things look like, particularly around things like politics that can be very divisive and they can be inflammatory. Um, so it, rather than them being a gray and, and complicated picture, it's just a lot easier to think of it as, you know, us versus them, the good guys versus the bad guys. And to whatever extent that may or may not be true in, in different contexts, whatever the other side is or your own side, it's always more complicated than just to say the people on this side are, are like that and the people on on the other side are this some other way. Okay. And so when you were studying language, how, what did you see in our language patterns, like the words that we use that contribute to this kind of polarization and these assumptions? So what we studied is a type of language called the generic. And it's a sort of like making a, a, a generalized statement. Um, it's just a little bit more specific. So for example, um, birds lay eggs. You know, we, we generally accept it to be true, but male birds don't lay eggs um, and uh, baby birds don't lay eggs either. But we generally accept, obviously, birds lay eggs. Uh, we don't say many birds lay eggs. We say birds lay eggs. So in that same way, we kind of drop the quantifier. So instead of saying many, some birds, um, another, another example that I always like is that mosquitoes carry malaria. In reality, very, very few mosquitoes carry malaria. But it's important to know that a mosquito might have malaria, so we say mosquitoes carry malaria. So when we talk about our own party or the other party, in particular the, the other party, or some other party in, in the Canadian context, um, what we like to do is we like to squash them, uh, flatten them, the complexity of that party, of the people in it. 
So rather than saying, you know, the Liberal Party believes uh, many in the Liberal Party or some in the Liberal Party or 30% in the Liberal Party believe blank, we say the Liberal Party or Liberal Party members believe blank. And we just leave it at that. Okay, I get this. I can totally see this because then the other person, well, they kind of get defensive, don't they, Gustavo? They get a little, they get their backs up a little bit because they're thinking, well, you don't even know me and you're making assumptions about me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really difficult because this is a tendency we have. And, and um, from the study, we find that even when we tell people with the quantifier version, with the specific version, we say some Democrats feel this way, some Republicans feel that way. We found that when we asked them later, people remembered it as the generic version. So even if I tell you in a conversation, you know, some Republicans believe this thing. Later on, you might remember it as I said, Republicans believe this thing. So and then if you then communicate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's another assumption. Um, the, the biggest problem, though, is that if that's how you remember that and you go around communicating that to other people, we found that when people hear Republicans believe this, they think it's a more it's a higher percentage of Republicans than even if I said many Republicans believe this. When you use the generic, it just sounds like the whole group is this one consistent monolith. Right. So and then, that's really so the, people the, get the defensive as a result and they probably retrench themselves right into that belief. And then they, they look for people who are the same because they think, well, I'm not going to be they're not going to make assumptions about me. Absolutely. Um, so for, for our own group, we, we find that uh, people like uh, um, not quite, you know, the most complicated picture, but a, a more complicated picture than, than for the out group. So, you know, they get offended and, and they say, you know, that's that's not all of us. Whatever it is that you said, I'm going to retreat back to my group where, you know, they I'm accept safe. different people and, and we don't all have to think the same way. Right. OK, this makes complete sense to me. So then, Gustavo, what can we learn from this? Like, Do we all just need to be more careful with these assumptions? Yeah, we need to be more careful. We need to sort of look into where things are coming from. I mean, an issue is that because this is a human nature and it's very appealing to people to hear things put in this way, uh, the media likes likes it as well, um, just because the media is also made up of humans, just, just like researchers and just like uh, voters and everyone else. Uh, so when we hear these things, we need to sort of try to look into them more. If we want to talk about them, we should see, you know, how many of these of this group actually feels this way? So to what extent is this group a monolith about this issue or not? So it's almost two parts, right? Because at first, if you're going to if you love to talk about politics, and I know in the United States, people love to talk about politics, it's <laughs> to stop using those blanket terms. And then on the other side of that equation, people also have to stop assuming that they're all being lumped in together. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there's lots of issues where you will find overwhelming consensus within one party or another. That's absolutely true. And in that case, if you want to use a general statement, I, I don't think that that's a crazy thing to do. But in our research, we found that if one party, no one believed uh, in a particular statement and the other party believed uh, 20% of the other party did, then people sometimes would use the generic because of that difference. They want to highlight that difference. They want to highlight the differences between the two groups to make it more simple. One party believes X, the other party believes Y. So we just need to be more careful. And just a little bit less lazy in the way that we think about parties and, and the way that we talk about politics in yeah, general. A little bit more considerate. Oh, Gustavo, thank you so much. That was so interesting. 
Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me, Zimmy. That's Gustavo Novoa, who is a doctoral candidate in political science at Columbia University and has studied the use of, of language and political debate and finds that the, what's contributed to polarization is the use of language, That the fact that we assume, right, you lump people in together. Great, Just the way he described it was so great. Like you assume if you're a Democrat, well, then you must be X, Y, Z. No, not all people who say they're a Democrat are X, Y, Z. But we make those assumptions. And then you do that, people get they get their backs up about it, they kind of retrench in their beliefs, and that contributes to polarization. That makes perfect sense to me. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, what we're going to talk about with Scott is the one, but not in terms of love, in terms of the person that I think is just the worst human being. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that these stories are not uncommon, but what bothers me the most about this particular story is this person filmed her interaction and put it on TikTok and is like, Uh, encouraging other people to do the same. And what she did was return a couch to Costco, a couch, Simi, two and a half years after purchasing it. And she was very open about the reason that she was doing it was simply because she didn't like it anymore. She didn't like the couch, decided to return it, took it back, and, and then went on TikTok and explained, hey, everyone, you should buy your furniture at Costco because when you don't like it anymore, you can just take it back for a full refund, which I think is a uh, blatant um, abuse, abuse of Costco's return policy. Mm-hmm. Like, look, you're, you didn't crack some code, lady. We all know that Costco has a brilliant return policy, but it's there for people who need to return things. Not It's not like a, a borrow it for two and a half years and then take it back. Yeah, you didn't rent it. No. You bought it. And there is the implied thing of you don't get to return something just because you don't like it. That, you know what's going to happen? That's going to ruin it for everybody else. Because I wouldn't blame Costco at all. In fact, I think they should. I do too. Put in a policy saying there has to be a reason other than you don't like it. Yeah, or it's like not personal a, taste. A statute of limitations. Like you can't you can't return a cake that you've eaten three quarters of the cake, you know, like, and there are stories about people that have done this. And I mean, this is, like I said, she hasn't cracked some code or something. We all know that Costco's return policy is great. And like, I have, uh, I've used it when things have gone wrong. And I know lots of other people have, and it's really wonderful that you don't have to um, have a receipt and don't have, you know, like they make it easy on you. Sure, They have a record of everything you buy. (laughs) But the, so many people have taken advantage of it and then boasted about how they have taken advantage of it, that, yes, we are all going to end up paying for it. And you know what else I don't like? You know where that couch is going to end up? In a landfill. You know, that's the problem with this stuff is that's going to like you're not helping anyone except yourself. It's a very selfish um, thing to do. And and then again, like I said, the problem for me specifically is that you go online and boast about it and encourage other people to do it like you've done something smart when really you didn't. Everyone knows that you could do this. You just did it for the wrong reasons. I just people like this are the worst. Why would you do this? Why are you so proud of yourself for doing this? You're going to ruin it for other people. And they're running a business here and times are tough. And now they're going to have to, 
you know, be inundated with already the lineup for returns at Costco is a pretty long one. Yes. Like whenever you go there, you'll see I'm like, wow, that's a long lineup for returns. This just makes it worse. Like you're just, you're, ta- you're this is abuse. You're taking advantage of this. Totally. And I will say, I, like, there's a part of me that sympathizes with, um, okay, Costco is a big corporate company. And over the last number of years, we've heard about corporate companies making record profits while people like you and me, Simi, struggle to make ends meet. And that narrative kind of contributes to this, but Costco is one of the good ones. You know, Costco is one of the stores where we hear the stories all the time about how well they treat their employees, how much they contribute to like positive things in the, in the world. You know, like they're a good company. They have a strong reputation. They're not the company that you feel you sh- need to feel like you need to stick it to them. You know, like there's a part of me that sort of gets that. I want to stick it to the man thing and get my own because it's so hard right now financially, but not Costco. I wonder if she's had any backlash to this. I'm sure she has. There's a lot of people that have responded to me on Twitter because she posted it on TikTok and then got reposted on Twitter. And some people are just straight up saying, you're stealing. You're you're stealing. And this makes prices higher for the rest of us. Yeah. Like, you're not a nice person for doing it. It's like those people that you see in line after Costco, after Christmas uh, at Costco with, like, the Christmas trees. They bought it there and they're just going to return it because now they don't need it anymore. Like, you think you're smart? You think you're, like, you're not smart. You know, know. it's obvious what this? you're doing. Why do people do this? It's obvious. We all, and she also said in the video, she's like, oh, it's a little bit intimidating when you're standing there and people are looking at you returning this thing that's clearly been used. It should be intimidating because you're doing something bad. You're doing something bad for the rest of us. No, not Nothing clever. is free. Every customer is paying for that. Yeah, so true. Well, Scott? I agree, 100%. Thanks for letting me rant. You're welcome. That's what we do here. Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. Our Von Palmer for the Vancouver Sun has been doing some digging and joins us now to talk more about the fallout from the Selena Robinson story. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And yes, the fallout on this one continues. Uh, the first thing I think to say is that the timeline on Monday is now clearer. So 7.30 Monday morning, the New Democrats put out a statement from Selena Robinson, a statement that's been vetted in the office of Premier David Eby. And in it, Robinson apologizes profusely. And she also says she's going to take anti-Islamophobia training. So my understanding is that idea actually came from the Premier. And that apology was intended to indicate that Selena Robinson would remain as minister and would be out trying to repair all the damage done to the communities that were hurt by her comments. Nine o'clock, so an hour and a half later, the New Democrats meet in caucus in Surrey, and there's a big protest outside, people demanding, uh, chanting, Selena Robinson must go, and it's an anxious meeting for the New Democrats. Uh, Some of the people that had been standing behind Selena Robinson and telling her, ah, hang in there. You know, hang in there. Don't give in to this mob. Uh, They were starting to have second thoughts. And they were having second thoughts for two reasons. One, the Democrat MLAs suddenly found themselves told that they were not welcome at mosques in the province. And second of all, the party had been forced to cancel a major fundraiser in Surrey the night before. And of course, this is in the middle of a provincial election campaign. Robinson attended the beginning of that caucus meeting and she left. 
10.30, the New Democrats cancel a major housing announcement by the Premier. Noon, the Premier talks to Robinson by phone. She's not at the caucus anymore. And he basically tells her, in his opinion, she's got to go. Uh, she agrees to go along with it, I would say reluctantly. 1.30, Simi, the Premier has a news conference at Cabinet Office in Vancouver, and he claims, ah, oh, this is a joint decision, except the person who helped make the joint decision, according to him, isn't there. Selena Robinson's not there. Why not? Well, the Premier says, oh, you know, um, she's taking some private time to get over all this. Well, I am told by someone familiar with Selena Robinson's thinking on this that that was the key question. She wasn't there because she chose not to be there because it wasn't a joint decision. She was basically pushed by the premier and she went along with it. So that's the narrative hmm. as I now understand it. And I think it is less flattering to David right. Eby than he himself made out that this was a greatly reluctant thing and it was just that she needed more time to communicate. It's pretty obvious that what happened here, Simi, is the New Democrats panicked. They've yeah. lost the support of a community they need in the election and a group whose campaign donations they need. And Selena Robinson had to pay the price. I'm curious about what was happening. Like you, you talk about that morning, right? That three hours from the meeting, the, the caucus meeting to when the decision was made. What kind of phone calls were happening? What kind of pressure was being exerted in those few hours on the Monday morning? Well, I think it had all been set in motion on the weekend when the party decided it had to cancel the fundraiser, uh, when the Muslim community made it clear that Robinson's apology wasn't good enough. Apparently, even her agreement to take the suggestion for anti-Islamophobia training wasn't good enough. So I think the panic had set in over the weekend that New Democrats who, in MLAs, people that I think some of whom Robinson relied on for support, people who were saying, no, you know, hang in there, don't, uh, you've apologized, uh, don't, uh, you know, there's a mob, there's an actual mob out there outside our meeting. And they were starting to have cold feet. It's an election year. Uh, the premier had had to do something that no politician wants to do in an election year cancel a fundraiser. And the other thing that was signaled here was his protests and stuff isn't going to go away because the community, the Muslim community, some leaders in it, made quite clear that New Democrats would not be welcome at their mosques, in their communities, unless Selena Robinson was right. gone from the cabinet. And so the premier changed his mind on what he had been saying the previous week, which is that she would be given time to rectify the problem and reach out to the communities, but made it clear she would continue as a minister, she had to go. So hmm. uh, that's sort of what happened. And okay. I, think, I don't think it reflects all that well on David Eby. They, they're trying to make it out to me like this is some kind of principled stand by David Eby. Uh, this is a politician who decided to reverse position and essentially force a minister out uh, once Fundraising and support for a key community 
was in danger. All right, we're talking with Vaughn Palmer, the Vancouver Sun, this morning about the whole Sina Robinson story. I, I wonder, Vaughn, you know, she's issued a couple of statements here. I wonder if it would have helped if she had, you know, kind of done the rounds, been more public in talking about how she was feeling. Uh, you mean how she was feeling about being forced out? Well, no, about how I apologize. Like if the apology had been more public, if she had come out and talked about oh. it, it, rather than just issuing a couple of statements that she had to you know, keep issuing more statements, I just wonder if that would have helped. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if the Premier had been more thorough about what he actually thought and felt and why he was standing behind her last week, and accepting her apology and praising her for making it, if he'd been more detailed, instead of just a little Twitter posting, he'd had, say, a news conference on it, which he did finally on Friday afternoon. And I agree with you. Had she been more thorough uh, and yeah. gone out right at the beginning, and again, not just relied on social media, but really showed the kind of contrition she showed on exactly. Monday morning, I think, yeah. I mean, it's not like people didn't put in the request, right? Like we put in the request. We asked to talk to if she had come on and had a thoughtful conversation, discussion publicly where people could hear her voice. I think that would have made a difference. But look at the look at the New Democrats decision on how they managed this thing. They managed this initially because the premier's office manages these things. Yeah, they managed this initially as we're not going to blow this thing out of proportion. We're going to stand behind the minister. We're going to have her apologize and maybe submit to some anti-Islamophobia training and reach out to the community. That was the storyline up to uh, about 9 o'clock Monday morning, including the 7.30 uh, a.m. statement from Robinson. That was the storyline. They then reversed direction. And they then have to provide cover for everything that happens. So you get that 180-degree reversal. She's got to go. The premier tells her she's got to go. And then, well, we make it look like a joint decision, and we won't let on that we've reversed direction because of a threat from a community whose support we need in the election. And we won't let on. It's because we had to cancel a major fundraiser. We'll pretend it's just a workload question. When the premier was asked, Simi, what happened between Friday when he was standing behind her and Monday when he was dumping her, he said, well, you know, we realized that the work here to repair relations with the community was going to take a lot more of her time and and she wouldn't be able to manage the Ministry of uh, uh, Post-Secondary Education. So he's the one who said, it really is just a math problem. It's a time management problem. I mean... That's just BS to me. We know what happened here. He chickened out because he had lost the support of a key community that he needs in an election year and because he'd had to cancel a fundraiser. And it was obvious to him the damage and the protests weren't going to go away. So he sacrificed a minister. Right. And there's been some fallout from this, too. Yeah, a lot of fallout. I see the mob wasn't satisfied with uh, her resignation. They trashed her constituency office. Uh, they want her out as an MLA, too, and silenced, I would say. Uh, Premier condemned that. I don't think he was surprised that the mob was implicated. Uh, they're not going to be placated by anything like this. And some pretty distressing response from the Jewish community. You know, one of the things E.B. said about the reason... Robinson had to go was because she had damaged a community that feels vulnerable and lacking in a voice. Well, 
The Jewish community feels that way too. I mean, that's one of the tragedies of what's been going on uh, in, in the Middle East, and especially since the Hamas attacks on Israel, is that the Jewish community feels isolated and lacking in friends and victimized by anti-Semitism, and, and they're insulted that they're treated like they're not victims because they're colonialists, and in that awful phrase, semi white adjacent. Uh, you know, that's the real tragedy here. And yes, Selena Robinson compounded it. But uh, David Eby's got a lot of repair work to do with the Jewish community, too, because they feel they've lost their advocate. They also feel the government has a double standard. They pointed out that they provided David Eby with cover when his office made two outrageous postings on International Holocaust Day, and E.B. said it was just a staffing error, and the Jewish community said, everybody makes mistakes, we accept the premier's explanation. And as they see it, this is the thanks they get for providing him with cover. Okay, and now the next test for the premier? Yeah, so a big test, uh, we kind of overlooked. Uh, Robinson's out as Minister of Advanced Education, or it's now called Post-Secondary Education, uh, temporary replacement is the next minister. They they have a structure where ministers who step in for each other, so it's Brenda Bailey. But Evie's uh, going to have to appoint somebody there. And I mean, will he appoint someone who is as forthright as Selena Robinson was in calling out the academic community and the universities for their willingness to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to people in their community uh, celebrating Hamas. Now, that's the that's the other messy part of this. And of course, there are calls out there for the premier to appoint somebody who believes in academic freedom as Hamas supporters see academic freedom issues. So there's this is really, really messy. I, I It is too bad for British Columbia that we got called into yeah. all this because it's embroiling communities all over the Western world and it's complicated and beyond most of our abilities to resolve it. We can't do anything about it, but we can sure see damage and fallout. And you've now got two significant communities in BC, both of whom feel horribly wronged Mm. by what happened here. And Simi, it's possible that both are right. That's very true. Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I think it's every parent's nightmare that something awful happens to your child, right? What about when your child commits an horrific crime, like a mass shooting? How does a parent even begin to cope with that? Well, in the United States now, the question has also become, what did that parent know and when did they know it? In a rare case, the mother of a mass shooter has been convicted of involuntary manslaughter. What made this case so different that authorities pursued it and got this conviction? Well, joining us now is Joe Barrett. Joe is the senior Midwest correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Joe, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks. Who is Jennifer Crumbly? Uh, Well, she was a mom in uh, Oxford, Michigan, Um, she worked at a real estate firm, uh, working on online ads and stuff like that. And uh, her son, uh, Ethan, uh, in uh, 2021, killed uh, four kids at his uh, local high school. Okay, so now she is obviously the center of this with this conviction of involuntary manslaughter. Why did authorities pursue these charges? 
Well, uh, you know, they, they pretty quickly were, were looking into the case, you know, the, just, just three or four days after the attack, they, they charged the parents. And uh, I think probably initially, you know, the fact that the parents were in the school the day of the shooting, um, Ethan had drawn this picture on his math, uh, math worksheet that showed a, a handgun, very similar to one that his parents had bought him a few days earlier. And he, you know, he wrote on it these super alarming things. I mean, he, he drew a picture of a person bleeding. Um, he said, you know, the, the thoughts won't stop. Um, please, you know, you know, help me uh, uh, and blood everywhere. Um, and so, you know, obviously everybody was very concerned about this. They brought the parents in. They told the parents, look, you've got to find help for this kid, you know, as soon as possible. You should, you know, you should probably do it today. And they're like, well, you know, we're not going to be able to find anything today. You know, maybe he should stay in school. And, uh, you know, his backpack was there with the gun in it and nobody checked it. Um, and a couple of hours later, um, you know, he was shooting at people in the hallway. And so they left him in the school even after the school officials said we're very worried about this? Yeah, they they said, you know, she, she said on the stand that uh, I would have taken him home if he wanted to go. Um, school officials, you know, thought it would be better if he were, you know, with his students that, you know, peer support might be good for him, you know, if he's in this state of mind. Uh, but, you know, but ultimately, you know, the school's initial, rec- you know, recommendation was take him, get him help today. And the parents kind of, you know, wanted to hear that they didn't have to interrupt the rest of their day. And so they, uh, they left him there. And, you know, the, the, the school didn't say they had to take him. And so they, they did what, you know, they, just... they, they sort of did the minimum. Oh, wow. Okay. And so uh, what about the access to the firearm? Where did that come from? So they bought the gun a few days earlier and um, uh, it was like, it was like Black Friday. Um, Then the shooting was on uh, Monday, Uh, you know, know, right before Christmas. So the dad and the son go to buy the gun. And uh, the next day, the mom takes the son to the shooting range and, you know, they had a grand old time shooting this uh this uh, nine millimeter um six hour uh handgun <clears throat> and then uh she you know she said she put it in the back of the car but the husband was really the one who was responsible for the gun and that he was supposed to take it out of the out of the trunk and and securely store it and she thought it had this special lock on it but uh and she hid the bullets in a in a beer stein somewhere in the house. Um, but it turns out that, uh, you know, the, the lock wasn't on the gun. Um, and, uh, you know, wherever they supposedly hid it, uh, Ethan was able to get to it. Um, there was really, you know, the combination was set to zero, zero, zero. And, and there was no special um, uh, leash or, you know, the other, other lock placed on the gun. So um, he had access to it. Oh, that's crazy. So in court then, Joe, like what was the trial like? What, did, did Jennifer Crumbly have to, what did she have to say about all this? Well, you know, she, she was on the stand for, you know, quite a while and, um, and had an opportunity to, you know, she just had a very reserved uh, affect, I think. I don't think that that really did her any, um, any help on the stand. Uh, and, and she, she said, you know, you know, but basically, she said her husband was responsible for the gun. The school didn't say she had to take him home, uh, and that she, you know, she feels like she did some something wrong, but she didn't feel like a failure as a mom. Uh, and uh, you know, she ultimately, you know, looking over everything that she'd done, she wouldn't do anything differently. Um, Are you kidding me? But she did. 
Yeah, no, she said she literally said, uh, you know, I thought about it and there isn't anything I could have done I, yeah, done differently. And she, she just said, she, you know, she had no idea that he was in this kind of state and about to shoot up the school. Oh, wow. OK, so and what about her husband? Did he face charges? So he's facing the same four charges of involuntary manslaughter and he will go on trial uh, in March. So, Joe, do, does this mark a turning point? Do you think what the fact that they went after parents here, like will other, do you think jurisdictions, if there is another school shooting, will they do something similar? This um, certainly breaks ground on, on this kind of case um, to have the parent actually charged with the with the crime. We've had a couple of other parents who were charged um, just actually recently with um, like acquiring a gun for their child who went on to do a a shooting that was in Highland Park, uh, Illinois. Uh, But that was just specifically related to, you know, buying the weapon. Um, And then uh, another parent in Newport News, Virginia was charged with child neglect uh, when her six-year-old son took a gun out of her purse and um, when shot his, uh, I think, a first grade or kindergarten teacher, I forget. Um, but they weren't charged with like the assault or the or the or the actual crime. Um, these are the first parents who were charged with, you know, involuntary manslaughter. And it's a difficult case to prove. There's there's a lot of, you know, links in sort of the causal chain that uh, make it hard to make this case and that, you know, you really have to have a lot of evidence. And in this case, we had Facebook posts. We had we had videos. Uh, we had uh, uh, we had, you know, many, many texts. And so, the, you know, there were really granular details here that, that, you know, showed the parents and their responsibility. And so you're not going to have that in every case. So, you know, I, I think it opens the door sort of as a precedent. But legal authorities are saying it's not like it opens the floodgates and you're going to see these cases, you know, popping up every time there's a school shooting. OK, so a unique situation then. And what happens now? She's been convicted. How much time in jail could she face? Well, it's 15 years per um per charge and there are four charges. So I I think it's not likely that she's going to get 60 years, but I, but I think it is a possibility. Um, So, you know, it'll be up to the judge uh, who's going to rule, I think April 9th. Oh, wow. Joe, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's Joe Barrett, senior Midwest correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, talking about the Crumbly case. So Ethan Crumbly, uh, shot and killed four students at the school that he was going to. But recent, and you probably heard that, that was a couple of years ago, but the case now involved his mother, who clearly ignored warning signs or didn't see warning signs um, and had opportunities to do something and did not and was just convicted of involuntary manslaughter in the circumstances there that Joe explained that lots of evidence in this particular case and the father in this case uh, has yet to go to trial but it is a unique one and certainly sets a precedent out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've heard of Dry January, which I know a lot of people participated in, and there's something new for you to consider in February. Our Scott Schantz is with us now. Scott, are you doing this? So this is a great question. I, As is soon it? as I heard about this, I was like, this is a brilliant idea. And then as I think about trying to do it myself... I get so freaked out. I have I would have a way harder time with this than I would with dry January. And, and you this, know what that tells us? It yeah, tells that us I need it, to do it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And the this, the thing that we're talking about is flip 
phone February. So this is a movement that has started, uh, I think this year, this is the first year that I've heard about it, and it's really gaining steam on places like Reddit and uh, TikTok, those type of things, where people give up their smartphone and use a flip phone or what's called a dumb phone, like a phone that doesn't have all the internet stuff, uh, for a month and just see how they get by, see if they can do it. All kind of birthed out of this idea that we're all addicted to our cell phones. Hands up, guilty, I am one of these. And uh, so I wanted to know more about it, and I got in touch with someone named Sarah Tebow. She's an LA-based artist, she's a blogger, she's a podcaster, and she started a subreddit called Flip Phone February, where people can go and exchange their stories and kind of support each other and stuff. So I had a lot of questions for her. I just started by asking her to explain, like, what in her mind, her in her interpretation, is Flip Phone February. Yeah, um, it's essentially a follow-up to Dry January, where instead of letting go of alcohol for the month, you kind of try to reduce your screen time. So the idea is that you would uh, switch from a smartphone to a dumb phone, so like a flip phone, or I'm personally using a light phone, which is kind of a variation of that. Okay, so is the, the idea here is like to combat our addiction to cell phones. Did, is that something you recognized in yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, one of the reasons I kind of did it is I, at the beginning of the year, um, on New Year's, I saw video of people at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. And, you know, right as it, the clock turned midnight, um, everybody had their phone out instead of like celebrating and being, you know, excited for the new year. And I kind of, I recognize myself in that because I think there's times where maybe we're not as present as we should be because we're trying to capture it on our phones. And so I thought like, okay, like where in my life could I kind of take a step back from my phone? And then people sent me Kashmir's article about her doing it for a month um, where she switched to a flip phone. And so I think, yeah, that really appealed to me. Like what would be my life be like without notifications and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really funny because I think what you're talking about, I saw that same video of the Arc de Triomphe, and I think so many of us can identify with that and sort of, you know, everyone I talk to sort of is like, oh my gosh, I'm tied to my phone, I feel addicted to my phone, social media is ruining the world, all all of this, that that narrative is, is fairly common. But so many people are hesitant mm-hmm. to actually make a change. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, it's really inconvenient, you know. I mean, I'm an artist, and so, like, for example, one of the big things that we use, visual artists use to, like, promote ourselves is Instagram. And so to not have your phone to, like, post and check in with your community and do all the things that make you successful on there, you know, as a marketing tool. It's like really inconvenient, I have to say. But um, I think, you know, if it's important to you, you can make it work for sure. Okay, so let's get down to the brass tacks here. You've been doing this. How do you feel? Yeah, I feel good. Um, I feel optimistic that it was the right choice. Um, I have found like the first couple of days, it was a little weird because, you know, that daily thing of checking my phone and really scrolling a lot and feeling connected and having all the ease and like of, you know, in the color, like the fun visuals of being on your smartphone. Um, I kind of felt like, Oh, well, what am I supposed to do now? You know? Um, But one of my goals was to 
spend more time being creative. So like the other day I went to a restaurant and like was waiting for food to arrive. And instead of just playing on my phone, I like did a little drawing of what was on the table or, you know, so I think things like that have kind of improved my life in these like small ways. And I'm kind of curious to see what happens over the course of the month. Okay. And now tell me, you, you started a, um, like a subreddit for other people who might be doing this. Yeah, I did. I thought, um, you know, one of the things I talked to the person who created the light phone, um, which is a dumb phone. And he said, one of the things they found with adoption is that people, it's basically like an addiction. You really need to replace the one behavior with something else. And so having a goal around it, like creativity, you know, or art making or doing more reading, but also having a community is really important, you know, um, because I'm kind of treating it like it's an actual addiction. So I, I think for me too, reaching out to other people and seeing how they're dealing with it or what troubleshooting they're doing, because there are a lot of like logistical issues with it. Um, I just thought that'd be a fun way to connect and see if it, we can all make it a little easier on our, ourselves. And and how has people's reaction been when they, you know, try to send you a video and you're like, oh, I can't see this. Like, can, can you text message on a light phone? <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah. Um, so I have my laptop, which is still fully, you know, set up with all of the things on it. Um, but I would say people have been really um, supportive of it and kind of like, those who aren't involved in it are like really curious to see how it goes. And then I think on the community on Reddit, people are interested to know like how I'm actually doing it and then share their strategies. And then now people are sharing like, Oh, I did some baking today instead of, you know, what I would normally have been doing. And so I think that's kind of fun because I, you know, got a recipe for date bars, you know, um, so it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think that there's been a lot of like logistical questions still because it's about a weekend. So people are still kind of figuring out like, oh, what do I need to do to make this more sustainable? That's Sarah Tebow. She started the Flip Phone February subreddit, and uh, I'm going to check back in with her. We, we planned a meeting for the end Scott. of the month to see how it went. Scott. I can't tell you how many thoughts I have about this. The irony that she's going on social media to talk about getting off social media. Yeah, but she's doing it from her laptop. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, she has a problem. She has an addiction problem. Like all the things that she was talking about that, that she can't even wait for her food in a restaurant without going on her phone. She has an addiction. Well, yeah, that's the whole point. We all, we're all addicted. Are we? <laughs> some well, of us more so than others. Some of us more so than others. All right, I want you to do this. No, I can't Scott. do it. I'm not, yes, I can't you can. Do it. Yeah, we're we're gonna talk more about the Scott's gonna do the flip phone February thing. This is mornings with Simi. There's a lot of history at the Calgary Stampede, and people love to talk about that history. But you know what the Stampede doesn't want to talk about? The history of sexual assault that is actually associated with the event. In fact, the Stampede has spent years trying to fight this. They wanted to sweep it under the rug, but now that has all changed with an actual settlement of a class action lawsuit. And for many of you out there, it might be the first time you even heard about this. Well, Carrie Tate's been writing about it. Reporter for The Globe and Mail joins us now to talk about it. Carrie, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me about this class action suit. Where did this come from? Well, this ties back, there's sort of two legal things that happen when we're talking about the Calgary Stampede and this idea of failing to protect 
young boys. There was a, one of the marquee shows of the Calgary Stampede is the Young Canadians, that song and dance troupe that you see after the chuck wagons with fireworks and jazz right. hands. And there was a man who was involved in that called Philip Harima. And he did go to jail in 2018 for sexually exploitive acts related to six members of that troupe. So that was in 2018. But in 2017, there was a class action lawsuit that launched separately. And it went after the Calgary Stampede for failing to protect boys who were under or who were in Harima's orbit. And that has been winding its way through court uh, since 2017. Okay, and so what was the Calgary Stampede's kind of reaction to these stories when they were coming out? The Calgary Stampede, sort of most recently tied to the lawsuit, would say, uh, they would say, you know, this, this is horrific, but they fought the lawsuit. They were not willing to settle. They said we, uh, they would not concede wrongdoing and would say that they're not liable for Harima's actions. That was him not the Calgary Stampede. But the men who were suing the Stampede were arguing, you know, not that Stampede committed the acts of sexual exploitation or abuse, but that it should have been protecting young boys in the young Canadians. These were minors. And that it didn't vet uh, Harima, it didn't properly oversee him. And then most damning, that when the Calgary Stampede like high-ranking officials did receive reports of either abuse or concern that it did not adequately respond. Okay. And so how many boys are we talking about here? This is tricky. So the class action lawsuit ends up spanning decades. It reaches all the way back to, I believe, 1987. And so it's any boy who was in the class or in the young Canadians at that time or a volunteer, a contractor, an employee, sort of anything related. However, that's just sort of generally how class actions work. If you fall under this giant umbrella, you're in the class. But of course, this is, there are degrees of suffering here and some of the people who have come forward or are participating in the class say they were victims of Harima's toxic bullying. And some, of course, were victims of um, sexually exploitive acts. And even within that, of course, there's, an, you know, it's difficult to phrase this, but tears of some are more damaging and harming than others. The lawyers for the case have not outright said right now how many men are in the class or in the class itself. And so we don't have a precise idea. I have been told in the past by the lawyers that there's maybe two or three dozen men who would fall into the category who suffered from um, more damaging harm at the hands of Harima. Oh boy. Okay. And so they've now worked out a settlement on this. There's a, the Calgary Stampede is admitting what? So the Calgary Stampede last July agreed to um, be responsible for liability. Not, you know, they're not conceding full responsibility, but that they would cover the costs and the damages. So yesterday, a tentative deal was announced for $9.5 And now 
this jumps out because last June, even just last June, they were still saying they uh, were not responsible for this. So there was a sharp turnaround in their tactics. We don't yet know why. Um, They will not speak publicly until the deal is settled. But right now, there's a tentative deal in the works. It still needs the approval of the judges, uh, pardon me, of a judge. And they still need to sort out who gets how much money. But this is so much further considering than they ever were, considering this was launched in 2017. Oh, wow. Okay. It's taken a long time to get here. Um, yeah. Are there... Is it Calgary Stampede? Is this like Carry one of those organizations where, you know, somebody was told and nobody did anything? Like, are there protections in place in case this ever happened again? Well, this is tricky. This, again, becomes these, this, there's sort of two moments that were revealed in the lawsuit. And one is in 1988, there is an alleged victim who said that he told the head of the grandstand show um, you know, at a party that Philip abuses, uh, Philip Harima abused him. And in the lawsuit, he claims he was told, you know, you can't say things like that. That'll have serious consequences, sort of indicating you can't be part of the young Canadians if you make such statements. So that's the first instance, documented instance that we know of someone in Stampede aware. Then you have to fast forward all the way to 2008 before a uh, complaints come within from another instructor within the Young Canadians. I I believe it was a gymnastics instructor flagged their concerns for the senior leaders and sort of said, I'm watching the way this person interacts with the young, with the boys. I'm worried. We don't know everything concerns over Mm -hmm. their safety. And then there's some emails about the questions around Harima. So there, there was definitely people within Stampede, at least by 2008, and if not by, you know, 1988, that we're aware that there was, if not outright problems, that they should be looking to see if there are problems. Right. Okay. So you'd like to think that that changes with this um, and, and that this will help out the situation. So did they change any policies or anything as a result of this? Stampede has said that they've changed policies. Um we haven't quite seen the full accounting. Part of the settlement was also that there will be, you know, enhancements um, made. It's not as though it was exceptionally sloppy prior, though. I mean, there were rules in place. It's just that people weren't following the rules. So you can put all the rules in place you want. The difference is, do you have people in place who will take action when they become aware of something that's problematic or could be problematic. Oh my gosh, Carrie, I think you just nailed it right there, right? So many organizations need that rule right there. Carrie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Carrie Tate. Carrie's a reporter for the Globe and Mail. And that's exactly it. You can have all the rules in place, but unless somebody goes, yeah, that doesn't look right, I'm going to actually do something about it rather than being, oh, it's probably fine. Uh, That is what makes all the difference, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Are we ready for a car-free neighborhood in downtown Vancouver? One particular neighborhood, as a matter of fact. What about Gastown? Do you think that would be a good idea? Well, it is something Vancouver City Council is discussing, thinking about. And Peter Meisner joins us now, ABC Vancouver City Councilor, to talk more about this. Thanks for being here. 
Yeah, good morning, Simi. Now, do you think this is a good idea? I think this is a great idea, and this has been talked about for years. And personally, I'm really excited about it, um, having lived in the neighbourhood and always thinking what a, what a great opportunity there is there for a pedestrian uh, first experience with all the tourists that come in uh, from the cruise ships in the summer and all the locals that want to sit and enjoy uh, the beautiful neighbourhood historic buildings and just experience it in a more uh, dynamic and uh, car light way. Okay, car light. What does that mean? Yeah, so what we're looking at is uh, a pilot uh, this summer. We'll, we'll be discussing this at Council today. Uh, and I say car light because uh, it is still going to maintain access for tour buses, for uh, deliveries for businesses. We've heard, um, obviously, loud and clear from the Gastown Business Improvement Association about the importance of uh, deliveries and loading a drop-off. Um, but it's also prioritizing pedestrians. So it's really put, putting pedestrians first and taking off a lot of that commuter traffic that cuts through the neighborhood and uh, creating more space for patios and places for people to enjoy the neighborhood. Okay, so what would this proposal look like that you're talking about today? Yeah, so what we're talking about and voting on today is the pilots. So this would be a closure of Water Street uh, in July and August. Uh, and what that will do is allow us to gather data, inform uh, the bigger Gastown planning process. So the longer term vision for Gastown is to move to a more car light experience. Exactly what that looks like will be informed by the two month pilot that we're going to be voting on today. But what that's going to look like is uh, street closure, as I mentioned, but also uh, a maintenance of a few blocks for tour buses so they can come in and drop people off. So uh, Camden and Abbey will uh, remain open uh, to Water Street. There'll be kind of a loop there if you're familiar with the neighborhood. But the other blocks would be closed and there'll be furniture and planters and patios um, and as well as a whole bunch of sanitation uh, supports from the city uh, in order to ensure that the pilot is a big, big success. Okay, so how long would this last? Two months. Two months this summer is the pilot, and then we'll be going into the fall with all that data and all those learnings from the pilot, what worked, what didn't work, and that will inform a bigger uh, planning process for Gastown, which will include new sidewalks, new street surfaces, new lights, just a total rejuvenation and revitalization of the neighborhood. Yeah, what have you heard from from people who live there? Because there's a lot more people who live there, I think, than used to, right? There's been a big push for that over the last 10, 20 years. Like, how much has Gastown changed? Yeah, I mean, I was one of those people. I'm, I'm not far away anymore, but I did uh, move into Gastown in 2009. So it's changed a lot. I mean, there is residential uh, uh, density there, and I think that's great for the life of the neighborhood. I've heard, um, you know, a lot of support uh, for the idea. There's, of course, some concern, I think, you know, fear of the unknown. But that really is why we're doing this two-month pilot, to collect that data and, and uh, decide what is the best way forward for the neighborhood. So uh, we're not charging in and, and shutting down all the streets permanently. We're doing a two-month pilot. And then we're going to uh, go back to the normal traffic patterns and analyze how the, uh, the pilot went. So um, I think there are a lot of businesses are excited. They're excited about the opportunity to move their uh, seats outside. Uh, we're going to have that expedited program for businesses to move their restaurant seats out onto the street or a patio. Uh, so a lot of businesses are excited about that. And I think they're also really excited about just um, encouraging more people to come to the neighborhood and experience how amazing it is. So is this something that could work elsewhere? Do you think, I know we do car-free days, right? In certain areas and they seem to be really popular, but where, where else could this work? Yeah, I think there's lots of opportunities around the city for this. I think with Robson Street, for example, we have the closure of uh, the block behind the art gallery. In my opinion, that's been a huge success. 
Um, in the summer, if you go there, there's food trucks, there's tables and chairs, there's people sitting enjoying the surroundings. So I think maybe an expansion of that is something that I would like to see in the future. Uh, we also have areas in the West End that I think would work uh, fantastic for uh, pedestrian priority spaces. You know, traveling, Simi, I'm sure you know you go around the world. These spaces are everywhere in Europe and, and many cities are already doing this. Even Montreal is doing a lot of this and it's people love it, right? I think from the pandemic, we realized that you know, we want spaces in our city to sit outside and enjoy the beautiful weather in the summer and also um, just experience living in an urban environment and not be surrounded by vehicles whipping by all the time. Right. And I think we can do this while maintaining, you know, access for businesses. Uh, we can find balance. Right. I guess it works in some places. I'm thinking as well about like Granville Street. I know we've done this on Granville Street for many years, but even Granville Street needs some help now. So going car free doesn't necessarily fix everything. Yeah, I don't think it's going to save the day. Um, I think Gastown has so much going for it. Gastown has amazing restaurants. It has beautiful heritage buildings. It's a huge tourist attraction. So this isn't really to like fix Gastown. This is to enhance Gastown. I think with Granville, there's other issues. We have buses flying down the street. So yes, it's close to vehicle traffic, but we still have huge buses using that route. So it doesn't really allow people to use it in a pedestrian way because there's still many, many buses. So maybe, you know, in the future, those buses could be put on uh, some of the parallel streets, for example. But Granville Street, we're doing a planning process. We're trying to bring life back to the street uh, and really um, boost its uh, uh, role as an entertainment district. So that's what I think is going to be good for Granville Street. Uh, Whether or not that includes uh, pedestrian spaces, I think that's to be determined, but I think it's, it's two different neighborhoods, but I'm, I'm confident this will be a big success for Gastown. Okay. Do you think, can you think of anywhere else that this might work or, or is it just, it seems like something uniquely Gastown. Oh, I think it could work in other neighborhoods for sure. I think, you know, there's opportunities on Davie Street in the West End, for example, Robson Street, which I mentioned. Uh, we already have a lot of parklets and uh, pilot plazas around mm-hmm. the city and different BIAs, which I think, well, I mean, and I know they're great spaces. I use them, you know, for lunch and I see how busy they are during uh, during the summer, for example. So, again, this is a pilot, two months. Uh, there's going to be a lot of data collection. We're going to put our best foot forward, and then we're going to take what we learned from that to inform the bigger planning process for Gastown. But I think it's really exciting. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. No problem, Simi. That's Peter Meisner, ABC Vancouver City Councilor, talking about a proposal that City Council is taking up today, and that has to do with making Gastown a car-free but car-light, as he said, uh, for a two-month pilot project this summer. Is this? Do you think this would be a good idea? Like Gastown, you know, v- very pedestrian-heavy. Lots of people obviously walking down there. Lots of tourists walking down there. So, would fewer cars? Do you think uh, not driving through? be something good for Gastown? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com.